From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, political commentator Joe Tuman returns to help us get a handle on the recent events involving the Republican Senate and the Trump administration, from tax reform to allegations of obstruction of justice. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. When historians write about the Trump administration, it's quite possible the 96 hours between December 1st and December 4th, 2017, will be somewhere in the first chapter. It began with former National Security Advisor, retired General Michael Flynn, pleading guilty to one count of lying to the FBI in return for full cooperation with Special Counsel Robert Mueller in his ongoing investigation. Later that evening, the Republican Senate pushed through a controversial piece of tax reform legislation. On Saturday, the president tweeted what appeared to many was an admission that he did indeed obstruct justice. On Sunday, his attorney, John Dow, stated that he sent the tweet and not the president. And then on Monday, Dow stated the president, quote, cannot obstruct justice. If your head is spinning as is mine, thankfully, we have political commentator Joe Tuman back to help us unpack these four days that, in my estimation, will not soon be forgotten. Joe Tuman, welcome back to The Public Morality. Always nice to be with you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You know, we, we want to use you sparingly, you know, to, to, to bring comments, you know, but it seems like uh, I need to call you every week because it seems like stuff keeps happening. So um, but glad to have you back. Thank you. You know, I've been watching, uh, in this capacity as a commentator, politics for uh, close to 50 years. And I can't ever remember uh, in all the, the administrations, presidential administrations I've watched, uh, from afar and up close, uh, as chaotic, as crazy, as uh, disorganized, um, and as impossible to resist watching an administration as this. It well is. Well, it's let's like talk. When you're, on the, when you're on the highway and there's a major crash or a train wreck and everybody pulls over to look, um, it's certainly not boring. <laughs> but well, let's focus. Let's focus our attention on the last what three days and see how many train wrecks we can come up with in the last three days. <laughs> okay. You, you know, Joe, it, it, it's my opinion that in a democratic republic form of government. That the journey, how you get there, is just as important, if not more so, than the actual outcome. So with that said, discuss the process by which the Senate passed the tax bill late Friday evening. You know, uh, I, I think it, at some level we have to acknowledge that Democrats, when they've been in control, have sometimes, they didn't do exactly what the Republicans did Friday night, but they've also sometimes, if they've had the majority, not been that interested in uh, you know, people on the other side of the aisle who might want to torpedo what they were trying to do, and this time it's a Republican turn. So I'm going to I'm going to say that from the outset and acknowledge that both parties at different periods in history have not been kind to one another. But having said that, I'm I'm greatly concerned uh, that what we saw on 
in the days leading up to Friday and then Friday night uh, itself uh, was not only something that shuts the Democrats out of the process, and that's frankly the least of the transgressions. It was something that uh, uh, produced, uh, at least on the Senate side at the time being, uh, legislation that uh, was literally being written as they were voting on it. Um, there were no open hearings on this. Uh, there were no final copies of legislation for any of the senators or congressional reps on their side to take home to their districts or to their states ahead of time and get voter feedback. Um, everything was kind of hush-hush, and even then, when stuff was leaked out, they were constantly changing it. So you never knew which version you were getting when they talked about it. And, and for me, uh, uh, the most unforgivable part of this is that uh, the Republican Party and Mitch McConnell, whom I've never especially liked, but I respect as a competent and able manager of his own party, and he certainly understands how things work in the Congress. You know, he used to be somebody, I thought, that, that at least respected math and, uh, uh, you know, therefore had some sensibilities about things like budgets and deficits and uh, the need to control spending uh, and to be smart about this stuff. And I was just astonished, frankly, when his party and, and himself demanded that there be no media coverage about, uh, uh, you know, what the final outcome of this would be in terms of its effect until this Joint Committee on Taxation came out with their dynamic scoring measures. That was the metric we were supposed to use. And then it came out, and it said that it would add a trillion dollars to the budget deficit. Right, that's, that's, that's a thousand billion, <laughs> right? And, and I think coming away from this, uh, you know, as, as annoyed as I was with this process, which was just chaotic, undemocratic, and frankly, really inefficient because you had people voting things that they hadn't read and they were also voting on things that were changing in the language of this as they were voting. Um, not only did you have that problem, but you have now uh, the possibility of adding a trillion dollars to a deficit that's already close to 80 trillion and uh, there's going to be greater need now for the United States in order to cover that uh, deficit loss to, to justify these tax cuts right, for corporations in this case, um, uh, in ways that require us to borrow money, which means we're going to have to, uh, uh, you know, issue more government debt paper, and the people who are going to cover that will be the same ones that usually do. And internationally, that means the Saudis and the Chinese. And when they hold most of our debt, uh, it necessarily affects our relationship with them. And China is emerging as a world player right now. I mean, there are so many ways that this was stupid, and counter to our interests, and frankly, counter to the interests of the Republican Party, that I'm just, you know, astonished, and absolutely astonished. And and the worst part of this is, if you look at that math, Myron, um, is that uh, uh, this this fantasy that McConnell has that uh, this is going to produce some robust growth is uh, uh, is denied, frankly, by the fact that not more than a couple of these corporations that they think are going to repatriate their money from offshore. Uh, assets or, or spend their tax savings that they're going to get, not one of them, or maybe only a couple of them, have said that they would expand. Most of them are going to do what they always do with new money, which is issue dividends, dividends excuse me, to, to shareholders, or better yet, buy back stock so that they control most of their own stock. That way you don't have to deal with shareholder governance, and uh, you, can, you, know, you can control the price of your, your shares that way. And that's clearly what's going to happen here. We have close to full employment. 
Uh, most of these companies are doing fine. A lot of these companies are already have are cash rich, and they haven't put that money into expansion. So, where where is this pie in the, the sky thinking that they're going to suddenly have this jolt of altruism and do the right thing and not only hire, but as Trump has I think predicted, which is completely off base, they're supposedly going to give everybody raises. Why, why would they do that? It makes no sense. This is this is the worst tax bill I have ever seen in my life. The process by it, uh, by which it was advanced to rec- reconciliation, is frankly a chaotic. And and like I fear what's happening is that the the chaos of the Trump administration. Here's your soundbite. Is now infecting the the workings of what would other, otherwise an efficient Congress, and they're well, beginning to behave like the president's office does. Well, that was going to be my that was going to be my next question. And you sort of as a perfect segue is that. It felt like, um, for example, there, there was a proposal on the floor to um, hold off on voting for this legislation until every member had a chance to read it, and that got voted down. So I'm, I'm yeah. Wo- why would you want them to read it? You wouldn't <laughs> want them to know what they were voting for, would you? <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> so, so there's, there's a sense you talked about fear. Was there a sense in your view then of a, a desperation to get something passed and and yes. something better than nothing? I, I guess. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I have to be careful about the, the, the gendering of my language here, but I think that the, the GOP, particularly in the Senate, where it's, you know, it's a smaller number of senators we're talking about as opposed to the House, um, had felt uh, emasculated, uh, impotent, uh, feckless, powerless, you know, after so many efforts to repeal the ACA, you know, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, or to try previous iterations of this tax change, tax reform. Um, and, uh, you know, they unfortunately have this kind of uh, narrow view of how to keep score, and they're aware of the fact that there's a lot of media interest in this. And so I think optically they wanted the appearance of showing, yes, we're in control of the Senate, the House, and the White House, and even though we failed a bunch of other times, look, we've delivered this big historic uh, legislation and it is historic, but not for good reasons. It's, I mean, this is a disastrous uh, piece of legislation, and, and we don't even know everything that's in there because we're still trying to sort through this, as it stands. But uh, yeah, I think they were desperate to to show that they could win one, and uh, I think in the long term, this sort of thing, especially given that uh, uh, the worst. I mean, another bad part of this is that. It may end up being the case that these corporate tax cuts uh, down to 20 percent um, will be permanent. Uh, is now going to be uh, compared with the fact that the uh, that the tax cuts for for individual uh, taxpayers um, will probably sunset within a decade, uh, especially when there's not the growth that they're expecting, which would mean that ordinary people like you and me are going to see our taxes go up, and corporations that never needed this in the first place and may not be spending to grow the economy, we'll have this forever. I, I, I do think that uh, the corporations will be happy to keep contributing money to Congress, but the voters are going to say something about this, and they probably will start saying that in 2018. Now, you, you touched on it um, in your initial disclaimer, but I want to take it a little further, because the contrarian uh, to what you've offered um, in terms of the process what might say, how is this bill different than, say, the Affordable Care Act, which passed without any Republican re- votes? Now, yes. how, how would you respond to that? 
Well, I, it, it, that's fair. And I, I do think uh, at some point that the, the Democrats were not interested uh, in hearing this. But um, let's remember at the same time that many of the Republicans had made it clear uh, that their participation in this was designed to completely reshape it and take it down. And, uh, uh, and, and so, in a way, they were overt about uh, wanting to obstruct the process in the previous iteration of that. And I do think, as I said, I want to be fair, that, that you know, each party, when they're in charge, uh, will be selective about how kind they want to be to the other side. And part of the problem um, in having only a two-party system, this binary system that we have, we pretend that we're a multi-party democracy, and there are other political parties, but it's really the Democrats and Republicans. And, you know, you work when you're behind to get on top, and when it's your turn on top, you, you stick it to the other guy, just like you know he's going to do it to you when his party gets on top. And this kind of internecine warfare that we've had now for uh, a couple of hundred years, practically, uh, uh, with both parties doing this, um, continues to result in this uh, unfortunate, uh, uh, you know, non-collegial non, uh, behavior that we see. And, uh, you know, it's, what's really disappointing to me as a political scientist is that I actually had higher hopes for the Senate because senators have longer terms. Um, uh, they, it's a smaller body, so you're going to work with people on the other side. And as Orrin Hatch and Ted Kennedy demonstrated, you can have friendships with people that you ideologically disagree with. And out of those relationships and friendships, if you have a long working relationship, you can eventually find ways to agree or to meet in the middle on things and to support each other. This current Congress, and especially with this behavior with this tax legislation, uh, shows none of that. It shows that uh, uh, there's going to be party solid, partisan solidarity and the relationships be damned, unfortunately. And uh, you just know that when the Democrats, who don't have a lot to offer themselves right now, get their chance to be on top, they'll be doing the same thing to the Republicans, and frankly, it will be just as counterproductive as what the Republicans are doing now. Well, to, it's really, it's a bad, it's a vicious cycle we're well, in right now. Well, to that last point, um, are we now at a point to where any discussion or concern uh, about the deficit are the musings of the party and the minority? Was that, is, that, is that what we've gotten to? Well, I, I no, not exactly. I mean, the the, the criticisms of like, the, like, the, the the party that cares about the deficit is usually the party now in the minority. Well, it would seem that way, and 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 uh, the other people I think we're worried who are the ones we should be listening to are these nonpartisan outside. You know, some of them Nobel laureates, uh, experts, economists who have done their own modeling on this and said this is not going to do what you or you know your expectations are a little too rosy. This is not going to do what you claim. And uh, they have, you know, the interesting thing is that Joint uh, Commission on Taxation, which is supposed to be bipartisan, right, um, those results mirrored uh, what the economists had been warning about this before and at the same time uh, mirrored the results of several other uh, uh, tax groups you know, outside of government, uh, watchdog groups, some of whom are really dedicated to making sure that we don't get into bigger deficits. And, uh, you know, my father always said, I may have shared this on your program before, but it, it, one of the sayings was that math is not an opinion. <laughs> math <laughs> is math. And, you know, when you say you want to wait for certain results and the results come and suddenly you dismiss them because you don't like what they are, 
that's the opinion part, but the math is the math. And in this case, uh, Republicans have chosen to unfortunately ignore the reality of this in ways that I think uh, uh, are just awful. And it has put the Democrats in this unusual position of being the ones who are worried about deficit spending when usually, uh, or growing deficits, when usually it's the Republicans who are these fiscal hawks. They clearly have dismissed this. You know, I think if Steve Bannon's effort was to completely blow up politics as usual and to turn the Republican Party inside out with Mr. Trump's candidacy and now his presidency, uh, I think his influence on what you're seeing in Congress is is pretty evident. And he may be laughing from where he is about how he's accomplished this, but uh, the result of this is not better. It's certainly disruption, which I think was his idea. Um, but it's it's also chaos right now. So, so staying with this, we're going to move into uh, political science 101 and explain, explain, if you would, what's next in this process. Then we've had a House bill, we've got a Senate bill. What happens next? Well, when, when you have both of them and they, are, they have differences, and they do have differences, by the way, about uh, one of them, for example, uh, keeps all seven up if we're talking about individual uh, payer rates. You know, I think one of them keeps the seven rates that we have now. The other goes to four. That's, that's an example of one. Um, there, there are disputes about when things should sunset um, and, and the like. There are several differences. So and the mortgage deductions to, are different. Is different. And yeah, it's, exactly. And there, and there, there are some who, who want to maybe uh, keep in uh, some of uh, the deductions for local and state but cap them at a certain amount, that sort of thing. Property taxes, for example, as well. They have differences. And so, uh, and, and, you know, even down to probably the least f- fiscally significant but symbolically hugely significant, uh, they have different opinions about uh, whether teachers should be allowed when they spend their own money to buy supplies for students, whether they should be on their minuscule salaries allowed to deduct those expenses. And that's another difference. It, in the grand scheme of things, it's not going to mean make any impact, frankly, or very small, tiny impact on uh, the budget deficit, but symbolically it means something huge, right? I mean, why would you hurt teachers who are already spending their own money that, that they don't make much of to help their students, right? So this process that we're going into now is what we call reconciliation, and that means that leaders and representatives from the House will sit with their with their bill, and across the table will be leaders and representatives from the Senate, and they will work it out. They will go through where they're different and see if they can find a consensus on things. And again, this is where it's important to have relationships. Now, of course, this is largely going to be Republicans talking to Republicans. But House Republicans, remember, culturally right now, are still different uh, than, than Senate Republicans. Um, I don't know that we call, or they would call themselves Tea Party people anymore. That may have become cliche, but you still have a number of people who have that background. The Freedom Caucus, are, right? The Freedom Caucus, who are still a, a little bit more hardcore and are definitely uh, deficit hawks, you know, fiscal hawks. You don't want to see government spending go up. Who are probably going to have some concerns about having to borrow money to cover, uh, you know, this this number when when the growth doesn't happen as robustly as the Republicans thought it would. And there's going to be a discussion about that. Um, they're not out of the woods yet. Uh, I think they feel, and they've talked themselves into this, that they can reach. Um, uh, some kind of compromise with each other on this and push something through for the sake and the importance of being able to push something through. Um, but there are some significant differences still to go, and 
that could still torpedo this. That's that's the reason I think they're now saying that, uh, you know, even though they, I think, optimistically reported before that this would be done real quickly, now they're saying maybe at least a month and who knows, maybe more. Because the more we know about the math of this, the more that they know they better be very careful how they're treading because rushing to judgment on this uh, and sticking the public with it uh, will be very hard to undo. I mean, one of the things we found with the Affordable Care Act that Republicans discovered, you know, President Obama spent all of his political capital to get that pushed through. It's a Herculean effort. And Republicans, you know, carped about the ACA, sometimes with justification. It wasn't perfect in its first iteration, right? There were some things that needed changing, but not all of them. Um, but they still found, nevertheless, that undoing something that massive is not so easy. In fact, it's almost impossible because you need consensus from so many different places to have the political will to do that. Republicans need to be careful in this case because the tax bill that they're pushing through right now is just as big, frankly. And when you make things like corporate tax rates permanent, it's just as difficult, if not impossible, to undo the parts of this as the ACA. And there's more to dislike, frankly, about this tax bill than there ever was about the ACA. So sticking us with this, with this thing, which could, you know, lead to all sorts of fiscal problems, uh, has has the stink of, uh, the stench rather of, of also being something that's a, a permanent problem that you just can't wash out. So, um, as a political scientist, uh, Joe, what, what will you be looking for? Any cues? Any particular people uh, that, that you'll be keying on uh, in this reconciliation process? Well, I, I, you know, ostensibly you, you look for your cues from uh, McConnell in the Senate and for, for Ryan in the House simply because they're the leader of their respective bodies. And obviously they have uh, lieutenants who will be keeping score. And uh, I think they've both learned, uh, McConnell more so than Ryan at this point, to be very careful about claiming you have the votes if you don't have the votes. And so uh, and but I think at this point they also have learned – to, to always try and talk about this positively uh, rather than being wishy-washy about it or, or expressing their skepticism at the process. Um, the important votes uh, in both parties, I think, out of, coming out of reconciliation, you know, still we need to look and see um, what do key members in each house uh, think. And, uh, you know, I still look in the Senate is in some ways uh, it's almost more important there because – uh, the Republicans have only the slightest of, of uh, edges where that's concerned. And so it's important to know that everybody would still back the final version of whatever the reconciliation would be. And uh, we already know that uh, you've got one senator, Republican senator, who wasn't happy with the final version of the Senate. That was Tennessee Senator Bob Corker. Yes, indeed. Um, John McCain said he'd sign off on this. But as more information, for example, emerges, you could see McCain – and some others uh, defect in terms of their support and maybe publicly criticize this. And that might be enough to shelf it. You never know. So they, these, some of these things we've talked about, particularly the, uh, the gross overestimation of what the, the economic growth might be, you know, the kind of pie-in-the-sky thinking that the corporate spending and is going to lead to more higher salaries and, and growing more jobs, uh, uh, you know, at these crazy rates or percentages that they were predicting, um, is is forcing the reality that this is really going to add a lot of money to the deficit. People who care about that 
uh, who are responsible, and people like McCain, you know, who I don't know how many more years he has in, in the Senate, but when you get people who are near the end of their, their career, they really tend to vote on principle more than any time in their life because they're not worried about re-election. They're just worried about doing the right thing and not having a bad legacy. And uh, I think that people, individuals like that, and there are several, uh, are going to look at this very carefully and decide whether they want their party to support it or not. If you're just joining us, I am speaking with uh, political commentator Joe Tooman. Uh, now, Joe, um, that was Friday. So we're, now we're going to turn our. Yeah. T- <laughs> no, <laughs> we're going to oh, turn. The other thing Friday was this little thing about Mike Flynn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, that's and that's uh, wow. That you're, was Friday night. What you, about Friday morning? You're, you're clairvoyant. That and we're going, we're going to we're sort of moonwalking on this. So we're going to moonwalk back to Friday morning and turn our attention to National Security Advisor and retired General Mike Flynn, who pled guilty to one count of willfully making false statements to the FBI. He yeah. also confirmed that he would cooperate with uh, Special Counsel Bob Mueller's investigation. Uh, explain what this means, and, and take a moment also to explain what it does not mean, if you would. <laughs> well, okay, so uh, the, the first thing to know is that when the, the White House said this has only to do with uh, Mike Flynn and has nothing to do with us, Nothing could be further from the truth on that. Um, it's exactly the opposite of that. It has everything to do with the White House. Uh, uh, Robert Mueller did not need uh, Mike Flynn's confession and willingness to accept responsibility for, for uh, you know, lying and, and for, for uh, uh, you know, breaking, breaking the law where that was concerned um, because uh, he already had, Mueller already had, Flynn's voice on tape, having because of those FISA warrants, the government, the FBI, the Justice Department was able to tape uh, conversations with Russian dignitaries, including uh, Sergei Kislyak, the Russian uh, ambassador to the United States. And uh, this is one of those situations in which they weren't wiretapping Flynn, but because Flynn was talking to Kislyak, or rather Kislyak was talking to Flynn, Flynn's voice is caught on that tape, and they are allowed to, that's within the warrant, they are allowed to listen to that. And so they already knew that in spite of what Flynn had claimed to FBI investigators, that Flynn did talk about the sanctions. And it also turns out he talked about, uh, in those same conversations, encouraging the Russians uh, to uh, uh, support a position that would get rid of uh, the condemnation of Israel and the settlements process with this United Nations resolution that was going up. Um, And uh, that not only was uh, problematic uh, in this case, um, because it, you know, it caught Flynn in a lie, that also potentially triggered what's called the Logan Act, which is an old law we have in this country. 1789 or something? It goes far back. It <laughs> sure does. And it hasn't really been used very much. Or, but there have been a number of times that we could have looked at that. And in this case, what the Logan Act, for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, is designed to do is to make sure that the incoming administrations – Right? or people even when they're just candidates. I mean, it doesn't have to be in the last couple months, right? Um, aren't negotiating or engaging in activity, communications, whatever, um, with, uh, you know, with foreign countries in ways that run counter to the laws and the policy of the government that's in existence at that moment. I mean, President Trump, was at, in, when this happened, uh, was President-elect Trump. He wasn't President Trump. He had not been sworn in yet. Mike Flynn was a private citizen when he did this. And so uh, 
there's no question that Flynn is in trouble for lying, obviously enough, but he also potentially triggered this thing called the Logan Act. There'll be some criticism of it, I think, coming from the right because they say, oh, it's really invoked. It's an old law. Who cares? But it was written for exactly these kinds of purposes. Well, so is murder. Murder is uh, an old law, Joe. So <laughs> Yes. And well, murder is – but they would say murder – there are all sorts of times murder has been uh, – murder cases are made. We haven't had a lot of trials involved in the Logan Act. Now, the truth is it's still in the books, and the logic of it makes a lot of sense. You know, when uh, when Ronald Reagan – which we all remember, uh, became uh, president in, in, in uh, 1980, defeating Jimmy Carter. His people had reached out to Iran, maybe you remember this, and had privately negotiated with them uh, the release of, of some of, of the things that we had frozen of theirs that we were going to give back to them um, uh, in exchange for the hostages being released. But they had to be released right after Reagan was sworn in. Yeah, January, on January 20th is when they were. That's what it was. Yes. Now, the truth is that secret negotiation prevented the possibility of Carter obtaining their release, which was his foreign policy objective while he was still president. And the whole point of that, as far as Iran was concerned, was to embarrass Carter, and as far as Reagan was concerned, to make himself look good. But it came at the expense of contravening uh, a legitimate foreign policy objective that was within the constitutional authority of the president at that time as a leader of our country. Now, they didn't invoke the Logan Act then because I think Carter was kind of ready to go, but they could have, is the point. And in a similar vein, Richard Nixon, when he became president for the first time in 1968, also scuttled uh, uh, peace talks um, uh, on the eve of the uh, – before, before coming in that could have led to uh, negotiations uh, and kept things in play. And, excuse me, uh, Joe. Excuse me one second. private citizen when he did that. One, just one second. For our listeners who were not born before 1968, Joe's referring to the 1968 election. Go right, go right ahead. You and I were probably yeah. following it closely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, these two, I'm just saying these are historic examples mm-hmm. of presidential transition teams. See, when Nixon did that, he wasn't president yet. And when his team did that in negotiation, quiet negotiation, reach out to the North Vietnamese, um, it, it scuttled the process that could have happened sooner uh, to lead to peace. And it, it, you know, Nixon was doing that for his own political reasons. So this Logan Act that we're talking about is designed to prevent things like that. That's, that's the goal of this. And the claim where Flynn is concerned here is that uh, uh, certainly by talking about sanctions, and I haven't seen the evidence because they haven't released it. What they showed us on Friday did not give us a lot of the detail. But it's, I think it's presumed that when Flynn spoke to the Russians uh, earlier, but before President Trump was uh, sworn in, right, uh, and talked about sanctions and said, don't overreact to these things, um, Vladimir Putin went along with that. Now, why would he do that? Well, presumably, uh, probably because Flynn either implied or promised a quid pro quo, like we won't enforce the sanctions once we're in, or we'll lift the sanctions, or whatever it'll be. And Putin went along with that uh, in the in the hopes of you know getting something in return. It's also the case, though, that when uh, Flynn, at the Trump team's direction, said to the Russians, um, "We want you to uh, help us kill this condemnation of Israel on the settlements," that that also happened. Right, the Russian, uh, uh, they had a, a vote that they used in a certain way that killed that condemnation, and that also contravened President Obama's policy objective because Obama had been very critical, as are many people in Israel, about the settler movement. They keep going into occupied territories where the Palestinians live, 
and build these large settlements and then say, move us, right? And uh, Obama had said there's supposed to be a moratorium on this if we're going to engage in the peace process. And even in Israel, they recognize that settlers are one of the big obstacles. That's a big political issue there. Mm-hmm. And it was our foreign policy goal, led by our president, who was still legally the president at that time, that Israel get a condemnation on that from the United Nations. What Flynn did at the Trump team's direction was kill that. And that was done as a private citizen when the foreign the commander-in-chief and the leader of this country said, we're supposed to be doing it the different way. That's a clear violation of the Logan Act. And if, you, if they want to invoke it, they can call it old all they want, but uh, that's something that Flynn could go to jail for. Only he's not going to go to jail for that because he made a plea bargain deal. And so now we get to the other side of this question. You were asking, like, so what's the outcome of this? Well, Robert Miller already had Flynn on tape, so he didn't need his confession. He did that because that's the one thing he's going to be charged with. And frankly, he's probably not going to serve any time for it. But he wanted Flynn to know, I've got you, and I've got your son too, by the way. And if you want out of this, then you're going to need to give me something bigger in exchange. And so now we come to the other part of this. The evidence suggests that there were at least two people in Trump's inner team, one of them presumably Jared uh, Kushner, the other uh, the former uh, national security advisor, but not not uh, well, not an advisor. She was sort of the person they called her Flynn's brain. Katie McFarland, talking about right, who's now ambassador to Singapore, um, who may have given direction on contacting Russia and what it was they were supposed to say. It stretches the imagination to places it won't go for us to believe that they would be involved in this and Trump would not know. I can't for a moment believe that. Um, This, in the end, this whole investigation has always been about one person. It's about Trump. It's not about Manafort. It's not about uh, uh, any of these other people, uh, Flynn, uh, anybody else. It's about Trump. And the question now is, what does Flynn have to trade? I don't think that Bob Mueller would have put his name on that document that they filed if he didn't already know what Flynn was willing to give. And if I was Donald Trump, I'd be real nervous right now. Well, well, staying with the president, because now that was Friday morning. So yeah. now now we're going to go to Saturday morning. Yeah. Okay. And um, the the president stated that um, Flynn's— No collusion, no collusion. Right, exactly. No no collusion. <laughs> so, 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 so what we're going to do, let's just—even t- we even if we take the president at his word with no collusion vis-a-vis the election, 2016 election— and while he was a um, uh, still a private citizen before he became president, um, be, but because the plea, uh, having lied to the FBI, brought by Sally Yates, the interim um, attorney general, doesn't that make the issue post January twentieth, twenty seventeen? Do you follow me on that? Did I? No, no, I lost you in the timeline. Okay, no, no. Okay, when Sally Yates um, brought um, this information that— Yates warned them uh, before. Right, right. but it was after January 20th. That's right, that Flynn was compromised. Right, so after that, and having not done anything, isn't there the potential that even there was no collusion in 2016, it's a problem for the 2017 Trump administration? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, because, uh, uh, well, first of all, this this newer information would contravene every go against. Pardon me, contradict is the word I meant to say. 
every denial and claim that Trump has made to this point, that he had no knowledge of this, he didn't know anything about it, that his only reason for getting after Flynn in the first place was this cock and bull story, in my language, about not telling uh, Mike Pence the truth about this stuff and embarrassing Pence. And uh, uh, now it appears, as I think we've suspected all along, that of course they knew. And frankly, they knew also when Sally Yates told them uh, this as well, not just uh, you know discovering later. And and let's remember that they, when Yates warned them, um, she wasn't warning them to say uh, this because she was worried about you know, people keep. I just mentioned the Logan Act, but that's certainly an issue here. But um, Yates' concern, uh, from a national security standpoint, was the Justice Department and uh, she were already aware of the fact that Flynn had lied about what he said to the Russian ambassador, um, which made him susceptible to being blackmailed by the Russians if he wanted to keep his job, right? Because they knew he had lied as well at that point. And uh, that was the reason she was warning. He, she, he was telling them, look, you better either limit what you do with this guy or get rid of him because he's now susceptible to influence and, and being manipulated by the Russians, who, who know that uh, even though they're complicit in this, <laughs> um, you know, they're outside of our laws. He's not. And so the whole point for her in warning this uh, in the first place was really to avoid Flynn being flipped by the Russians and creating a, a security problem. And in spite of all of that uh, clear evidence, you know, the Trump people referred it to their lawyer who wanted to look at it, McGahn is who I'm talking about, and they dragged their feet for more than two weeks on this. What were they thinking in that time, right? Wouldn't I mean, I think the rational thing to have done if somebody, even from the existing administration, warned you of this, that your house is partially on fire, you'll at least go check it out and put the fire out, right? But they sat on their hands, did nothing. And in all that time, Flynn could have done more damage. We don't know, right? But, uh, you know, back to the original point, I think that, that uh, Mueller giving him uh, some immunity on some of these other charges suggests that, as I said before, uh, Flynn has a lot to say, and, and it more than likely uh, implicates the president. So, we're, we're, Joe, we're, you know, we're, we're still on Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> the president sends out a tweet, quote, uh, he fired Flynn because, quote, he lied to the vice president and the FBI, which yes. makes him appear at least vulnerable to charge of obstruction of justice. Now, before we yes. go any further on that, because there's a whole lot to this, before we go any further, uh, explain why that tweet represented a potential obstruction of justice. Well, because if he says, I fired him because he lied, right, then it would mean that he knew he lied. And one of the claims that the president made a year ago, or almost a year ago, was, I didn't know anything about this, Right. And, uh, and by the way, the lie that he claimed that he had fired him for was lying to Mike Pence. The lie that we're talking about in this conversation is lying to the FBI. That's what uh, Trump claimed he didn't know about. But, of course, he did know about it. Now, uh, and, and, and that would also suggest, by the way, that is kind of evidence of collusion, right, that, uh, that there was a process to connect with the Russians and they didn't want to talk about it uh, publicly and uh, might have affected the outcome of the campaign in this way. So you'll note that uh, another player in this now, one of the cast of thousands of lawyers that the Trump administration has engaged Mr. Dowd, um, then was quick to claim that he had 
uh, dictated the content of the language for that tweet, which is a little difficult to believe, frankly, because Mr. Trump likes to tweet these things in his own inestimable style. And uh, what this says, uh, as a side argument, by the way, is, is this is the strongest case yet for General Kelly to finally get his arms around Trump and say, give me your damn phone, because <laughs> you've got other people writing for you and getting you in trouble because it's coming on your, on your, uh, you know, through your form of social media that, that belongs to you. That means the words you're saying are your words. Uh, and, uh, and so I'm not really sure that I believe, frankly, doubt in this. Uh, but either way, it, 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 it's not the strongest evidence, but it adds to a pile of a lot of evidence that suggests the president knew more than he said and that he knew it earlier. And these are all indicators, not of collusion, but of collaboration, which is kind of the same thing, you know, especially given the fact they were doing this in secret and lying about it after they were being called on it. And, and actually, uh, what, Dow, what Dow said was he wrote it and somehow it got into the hands of a social media person who put it up. Now, I'm sure all these things with a, with a simple subpoena, could, could we could get a timestamp on who sent yeah. what, where. But my, my question to you, though, ha, with Dowd stepping in it that way, does that potentially, if this is proven wrong, does that potentially put Dowd in legal jeopardy? Well, possibly, except he's one of the lawyers. So supposedly he's supposed to know everything in this, but, uh, but it could, uh, uh, certainly. Uh, and... And I don't even know that he's the main lawyer, and he certainly wasn't the White House counsel. That's McGahn, who was the one who was supposed to have been doing the investigation into Flynn's background based on what Sally Yates said in the first place. You know, honestly, one of the other issues I think that the White House has with so many lawyers there, um, from Ty Cobb all the way down to uh, uh, Mr. Dowd, is uh, it's not really clear who's speaking for what or who's speaking for whom. And, and they're all sort of involved, but they all have uh, slightly different interests, and uh, it's not centralized in this way. It really would make a lot more sense to just have the White House counsel be the, the voice for the White House on this. Um, and I, I don't know that there's legal jeopardy for Dowd where this is concerned, but you can bet uh, if he's going to stick with this story, which sounds a little unbelievable to me, frankly. It sounds more like he did this to throw himself on a grenade for the president. Um, uh, then he's definitely on Robert Miller's radar right now, and you can expect him to be subpoenaed as well, and he'll claim executive privilege or he'll claim client confidentiality, but I'm sure Mr. Miller will have his responses for those two. Now, that was Sunday. Yeah. And so now we're going to go to Monday. Um, Mr. Dowd was still with Mr. Dowd, who moved us, in my, in my view, into Nixonian territory, when, yeah. when he said the president cannot obstruct justice, which, for those who may not know, the famous Nixon-Frost interviews when former President Nixon said when the president does it, it's not illegal. Yeah. How do you see that? Well, part of my other background, besides being a political commentator, is I also teach constitutional law. And uh, I think it's pretty obvious that Mr. Dow did not study that <laughs> very hard in law school uh, because— that's not true. No one in this country is above the law. And uh, this idea that the president can't obstruct justice is, uh, frankly, baloney, uh, especially when the obstruction of justice is done in a way designed to save the president from uh, prosecution. 
um, or, or legal jeopardy of any kind. Uh, that's clearly uh, the case. The Founding Fathers never intended a system in which the president would be above the law. We didn't elect a king. We elect, we elect a president, and we re-elect every four years. That's the whole idea. If we wanted tyrants and people who could do whatever they wanted and be above the law, we would have uh, a Russian form of government. <laughs> okay, right. But we don't. We have real elections here, and no one's above the law. You know, it even goes to this other question connected to this about, let's say Mueller wants to build this case and he wants to go after the president. You know, one of the issues we have to face down the road will be this question of can you actually bring charges, criminal charges against a president, and what do you do if you file them? I mean, he's still the president. What do you do? And the Supreme Court last looked at that issue, um, which is kind of similar to this point about the president can't obstruct justice, um, back when Nixon was president. And arguments were made uh, then after this happened in that massacre. You and I remember, mm -hmm. maybe some of our listeners aren't familiar with it, but it was a similar kind of situation where the president in that case was being caught in several lies and was basically firing people who were investigating him in order to save his own bacon. And uh, we have the same possibility, you know, in this situation today as well. And uh, so arguments have been made. There was a Supreme Court hearing on part of that about the president's ability to, to fire these individuals. And uh, the court ultimately did not uh, comment uh, on the question of whether or not you could charge a president. They just ruled on the straight facts of that case. And so we haven't had a resolution of that yet. But I think most the constitutional historians who look at this would say uh, that what Mr. Dowd indicated is wrong, is factually inaccurate. The president is not above the law. No person in this country is above the law. And so to say that he can't obstruct justice is to imply that just, you know, the rules for justice don't apply to him. That nothing could be further from the truth. So, Joe, when, when you think about the chain of events, just, just the past few days, um, you sort of alluded to it, but I'll just ask you out flat out. Do you feel like these last few days has us moving closer to uh, what people are calling a constitutional crisis? And if so, what, what, what is that crisis? What would it look like? Well, yes, uh, we, are, we are moving closer to that. Um, we still have a president uh, who engages in this behavior that I think has worked for him to this point of being contrarian about everything. To, to totally be the opposite of whatever were the regular normal ways of behaving, right? And that has gotten him an audience with some, and it certainly has been disruptive enough. That's sort of this, this idea of disruption theory, that it has uh, taken everybody else off their game because it's a, it's a brand new way of behaving, uh, and, and you, you're not prepared for it. it. If I may use an analogy, not that I want to praise Trump here, but it's kind of like when the Golden State Warriors introduced their their uh, death team lineup, right? They went to they went with so-called small base basketball players, and you had all these people like Charles Barkley saying, "Well, that'll never work because everybody else is too big," and it turned out nobody could keep up with the Warriors. It was totally disruptive. And then a year or two later, the rest of the NBA adapted to that, and now everybody has a lineup like that, and they also have defenses for it. President Trump has kind of done that politically here. He has introduced his own death lineup, if you want his own former pattern of disruptive behavior that has been effective, not because it's the right thing to do, but mostly because everybody is used to doing something different uh, to defense against it or to, uh, to, to, to deal with it. And they kind of haven't figured out how to adapt to it yet. And so 
we've gotten to this place where he's effectively gotten away with this uh, to a point, but they will catch up to him eventually. And where those things that he's doing end up violating the law, there's going to be a price to pay for that in the end. Um, I don't think that uh, even though we're moving to um, a clear sense of that right now, that there's, uh, there's any resolution for this anytime soon. Uh, as much as the president wants us to believe that this will be wrapped up, or his lawyers are saying it's by the end of December, uh, I'll take any comers on that if they want to make a bet with me now about that one. I, that's easy pickings. Um, I really think at the end, Byron, besides the question about Logan Act violations, uh, let's not forget, forget conspiracy charges, uh, Julian Assange, WikiLeaks, uh, the timed release of information uh, of the stolen emails, the question of whether or not the Russians might have coordinated uh, with the Trump team on the hacking of the DNC servers, all of which are federal crimes. Uh, there's plenty to look at there. The, the Logan Act, I think, and the obstruction of justice are the low-hanging fruit here. But the real prize, I think, in this, and the thing that Mueller is probably most interested in, in his prosecutorial efforts, which will take months or maybe years to unravel, has to do with money laundering and, and uh you know, how is it that the, the Russians are financially connected to not just Trump but to others in this process? Because it's very clear uh, that Trump and his son-in-law were getting money uh, for their business enterprises coming out of the recession at a time when, you know, post-recession, if you recall all the, the rule changes that the Obama administration made to prop up the economy again, um, it would have made lending of money to people like Trump who had gone through a bankruptcy very, very difficult. And yet he secured money. Uh, through offshore uh, lenders who very likely secured their money from banks uh, that were connected to money laundering uh, for Russian oligarchs. I think he knows that this stuff is there. Now, finding the evidence for that requires forensic accounting, which is slow and boring, but it's also math. And like I said at the beginning of our interview, math's not an opinion. You, if you line up the figures and they add up to a certain thing, um, that will tell us that story. I think it's going to take pretty long time to get to that. And uh, we're likely to be living with this at least for another year, if not more. Joe Tillman, political commentator, thank you uh, for once again joining us on the public morality to illuminate us on a very complex set of issues. That was Joe Tillman. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. conversation with Joe Tuman. I thought we would close today's broadcast with an excerpt from the movie Frost Nixon based on the 1977 interviews between David Frost and former President Richard Nixon. In this scene, Frost is portrayed by Michael Sheen and Frank Langella as Richard Nixon. Throughout his entire broadcast, you're quoting me out of context, out of order, and I might add, I have participated in all these interviews without a single note in front of me. Well, it is your life, Mr. President. Now, you've always maintained that you knew nothing about any of this until March 21st. But in February, your personal lawyer came to Washington 
to start the raising of $219,000 of hush money to be paid to the burglars. Now, do you seriously expect us to believe that you had no knowledge of that? None. I believe the money was for humanitarian purposes, to help disadvantaged people with their defense. Well, it was being delivered on the tops of phone booths with aliases and at airports by people with gloves on. That's not normally the way lawyers' fees are delivered. Look, I have made statements to this effect before. All that was Haldeman and Ehrlichman's business. I knew nothing. Okay, fine. Fine. You made a conclusion there. I stated my view. Now, let's move on. Let's get no, out of the rest. No, hold on. No, hold on. No, I don't no, want to talk. Haldeman and Ehrlichman were the ones really responsible. When you subsequently found out about it, why didn't you call the police? have them arrested. Isn't that just a cover-up of another kind? Well, maybe I should have done that. Maybe I should have just called the feds into my office and said, hey, there's the two men. Haul them down to the dock, fingerprint them, and then throw them in the can. I'm not made that way. These men, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, I knew their families. I knew them since they were just kids. Oh, yeah, but you know, politically, the pressure on me to let them go, that became overwhelming. So I did it. I cut off one arm, then I cut off the other, and I'm not a good butcher. And I have always maintained what they were doing, what we were all doing, was not criminal. Look, when you're in office, you got to do a lot of things sometimes that are not always, in the strictest sense of the law, legal. But you do them because they're in the greater interests of the nation. Right, wait, just so I understand correctly, are you really saying that in certain situations, the president can decide whether it's in the best interests of the nation, and then... Do something illegal. I'm saying that when the president does it, that means it's not illegal. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. You can also follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Uh, 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 uh.